welcome to the Farming on Purpose podcast. Today's challenges in agriculture are new, but the grit and determination required to be successful have been handed down for generations. On the Farming on Purpose podcast, we preserve the ag heritage and traditions we built our identity on while pursuing the American dream of multi-generation farms that innovate for the future. Listen along as we share stories of how farmers and ranchers are building legacies, both in their business and their character, for the sake of those they'll pass the reins to. I'm your host, Lexi Wright, and I'm excited to talk with you about the financial, generational, and production challenges facing producers in the ag industry today. On today's episode of Farming on Purpose, I sat down with Cassidy Johnston, the Not Your Average Rancher, to talk about one of the most valuable assets we all have, regardless of whether we call ourselves farmers, ranchers, environmentalists, or just people residing on this planet, and that is land. As a student of environmental science who turned first-generation rancher, Cassidy brings a really valuable perspective to the table. This podcast is brought to you by Back Pocket Social Marketing. And yes, this is Lexi here. This podcast has been a real passion project for me. All the time that goes into interviewing guests, editing, and producing the show is sponsored by my freelance marketing agency. We specialize in website design, social media advertising, content creation and management, and email marketing. If you like to take a foundational approach to your marketing and figure out exactly what's working for you and what's not, and really focus on efficiency, then you would be a great candidate to work with us. You can reach out and talk with us more at Lexi at BackPocketSocial.com. We would love to help you solve your marketing challenges. Cassidy Johnston grew up in a suburb of Denver, but has now been ranching for over a decade. She serves in the gap between the ranch and the table to build relationships and form bold partnerships to answer the question, where does my food come from? She and her husband, Robert, have lived and worked on ranches in Montana, Colorado, and New Mexico, and have three little boys. Besides being an agriculture advocate and speaker, she is a bull and semen rep, podcaster, book enthusiast, and collector of weird socks. Thank you so much, Cassidy, for coming on the Farming on Purpose podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. Um, And love that introduction. Thanks. I'm so so glad to be here, and I apologize to your listeners for my cold, but thanks to one of my lovely three sons, I am sick. So here we are. (laughs) Part of the kids, I feel like they've always got to bring something home for you. Sometimes it's nice, Mm -hmm. sometimes Mm -hmm. not so nice. Well, um, first off, just tell us a little bit about your path to becoming a first-generation rancher and what you guys are doing on your operation. I'd love to hear more about what you do. Sure. It's kind of, it's kind of a long story as most, um, unexpected things are. I grew up, um, like you said, in a suburb of Denver and my degree, my college degree is from the university of Colorado at Boulder in environmental studies. So it's a hippie degree from a hippie school. Um, something about which I am inordinately proud. Um, but when I was a junior, I was looking for an honors thesis topic And I had to be at um, the National Western Stock Show in Denver 
for my job. I worked for um, one of the departments in the business school and we were doing an economic impact survey. So I took a clipboard and bothered people for the entirety of the stock show. And when I was there, I was like, you know, I really want to find a thesis that will allow me to be around horses specifically because when I was a kid, um, we have a, my godmother has a family friend who ran a ranch near Aspen, Colorado. So we would go and ride horses. I don't think I ever really noticed that there were cows there. I just, just there for the horses. So I decided I wanted to write my thesis about beef and sustainability, but at that time, um, sustainability wasn't a thing. Like it, there wasn't, it wasn't the buzzword that it is now. And so I ended up settling on, not settling, I should say, I, I chose the relationship between environmentalists and ranchers. And my thesis advisor was like, that's a great topic. Do you know anything about cows? And I was like, no, not a single thing. I know nothing about them. Um, so she said, well, why don't you see if you can find someone <laughs> who knows about cows? So I cold emailed the entire animal sciences department at Colorado State, all of them. One of them emailed back and said, sure, like, come on up. Let's talk about it. And, um, and he was like, have you been around cows? And I'm like, no, none like none at all. So very long story short, I went to the college farm at CSU to learn about cows a little bit. That's where I met my husband. That's a very hilarious story for another day. And then um, he said, you know, if you're going to write this paper, you should probably talk to a rancher. And I was like, yeah, prob probably, probably should do that. So my mom, I did what all millennials do when they're in college and they have a problem. And I called my mom <laughs> and she was a landman for an oil company at the time. And some of the people she worked with were ranchers. So she called them and said, hi, hello. Can my daughter who has never lived more than a mile away from Starbucks come and live with you? And they were like, yes, um, somehow, somehow they said, yes. So um, I was supposed to go up there for three weeks and this was in North Park. So if you're familiar with Colorado, that's near Walden where we were, it was actually Rand, but there's literally, I think the population of Rand is like 10 people. So, um, I was supposed to stay for three weeks, but I ended up really loving it. And they taught me how to not be a menace on a horse and how to drive a tractor. So I was on their hay crew. And then I went and worked for them after I graduated that December. Um, and that's kind of been it. We've worked for, like you said, several large ranches in a few big States. And now my husband manages a large commercial high altitude operation outside of Canyon City, Colorado, which is in like the southern half of the state, but we're up in the mountains. So. Wow. Well, thank goodness for professors who answer emails from students who have crazy ideas. <laughs> 100%. He came to our wedding because he was really excited Aww. that we got together. So he was even in attendance at our wedding. So that's so cool. <laughs> that is so cool. My husband and I had a similar experience with a professor from college that has always just like been part of our love story. <laughs> it's kind of funny, <laughs> um, but that's really cool. So you lived on a ranch as and did so how did that all play into your thesis writing and kind of what propelled you forward from there? Um, I lived on the ranch because, um, you know, I really wanted to understand, you know, going to see Boulder, they have a very different concept of the beef industry than I, I guess it's like, I don't know. They don't love the beef industry in Boulder. And um, I really wanted to make sure that I was representing both sides equally 
So I wanted to live with actual ranchers and this was a large commercial ranch. And so I spent most of the summer just like helping them. We moved, you know, we move a lot of cows. We moved a lot of water. Um, that's big hay country. So we put up 4,500 tons of hay um, and just learning. And, and then on the weekends when I wasn't, or I guess on Sundays when I wasn't working, I'd go and putz around and talk to all the other ranchers. And they, you know, showed me about grazing and um, what, what grazed sections of grass look like versus ungrazed and how we spread out water and all of the wildlife and all the things. And so that really informed how, how A, how, how I wrote my paper, but B, I just really loved that whole lifestyle. And because they just kind of brought me with them, they were like, well, this is what we do. So you should probably just come with us. They gave me their oldest, most quiet and gentle horse and just was like, okay, don't die. Like, come on. <laughs> and it just really gave me a good hands-on um, idea of what goes on. And I just really loved it. I loved living in the middle of nowhere. I loved not having any neighbors. I loved not having internet. Um, I like kind of fell off the face of the earth for a summer, which caused some hilarious drama later on, but you know, college hashtag <laughs> weird times. Um, but it just, it was such a great introduction into this industry. And, and if it hadn't been so welcoming and so open, if people hadn't been so kind, I don't know that I would have kept up with it because it's hard enough to want to try to to start in this industry, much less when you meet lots of opposition and people are, aren't helpful or they're unkind. Um, but so many people just said yes, that I couldn't really say no. And it turned out to be awesome. And then of course I met my husband in, in all of this and he's always just wanted to ranch. That's all he's ever wanted to do. So that worked out nicely because I really wanted to ranch too, but I didn't know how I was going to go about it. Um, and not that you need a, you don't need a man to ranch everyone. If you're listening to this, you don't need no man, but, but there's sometimes handy to have around. They can be a little bit. They can be beneficial. Um, well, so that was a very pivotal summer for you then it sounds like, and as far as like propelling you to where you are now, but I'm a little curious what was the original thing that drew you to that topic of like st really being the bridge between ranch and environmental side of things? What, what was so intriguing about that to you? And then has that carried forward into your life now or how does that all play together? Um, that's a really good question. I think as I was digging into this topic, because as an environmental studies major, we we focused a lot on sustainability and ethics, and um, and there's also lots of economics in that major. And so, Colorado, I grew up um, being outside. I had, like, if you took snapshots of my childhood, um, we rode, we we mountain biked, we went fishing, we skied, like we all wore Patagonia, like we it was like this visit Colorado ad of a childhood. And I loved being outside um, and I love the mountains and I just couldn't understand if, if ranchers want to keep ranching, they have to keep these wide open spaces. Um, and environmentalists also want wide open spaces for animals to thrive. And, um, and I think the title of my paper, you know, all the, all the titles are long and stupid, but it was, I think it was like 
forming a rancher environmentalist alliance to protect rangeland environments from development or something like that. Because my point was that if we both want the same things, we both want to protect open space, we both want to protect biodiversity and wildlife habitat, we all care about clean water. Why does it seem like environmentalists and ranchers are so separate? And I had a hard time understanding um, why, like that just didn't make any sense to me. And I'm an Enneagram one, I'm a type one on the Enneagram. So I'm very motivated by um, things being right and good and, and understanding the root cause of things. And it just didn't make any sense to me why these two groups who basically wanted the same things were fighting each other when if they just like got together, they could probably make a larger impact. And that does carry over a lot into what I do today with um, advocacy and just trying to bridge this gap between the farm and or the ranch and the table because it's a very siloed industry and a lot of people want to know where their foods comes from, but it's actually not that easy to find out how it works. Even I've even spoken to people in large food brands who have no idea how the agriculture industry works. And so it, you know, now it doesn't surprise me that there are tons and tons of different groups of people working toward the same ends, but they're all very focused on the means. Um, and some, you know, we get a little bit, um, get a little preachy everybody carries around their soapbox and I am like a card carrying member of the soapbox club so I understand but you know my overall message is like we all have a lot more in common than we do different um, and especially when we're talking about ranches in the west we, we're just kind of ranching like we don't cultivate anything like if you cut hay you know we're not planning it um, and we're just out here trying to protect yeah, I think over 700 million acres of rangeland. And so are the environmentalists. Like that's also their goal. And that's that was the whole impetus. I just didn't really understand uh, why that was. And I think we're seeing these groups starting to work together a little more. Um, the Nature Conservancy also has, you know, obviously has lots of rangeland conservation and improvement things on the World Wildlife Federation is doing lots of stuff in that space. So we're getting closer, but there's scorn on both sides of, of the alley here. So I'm just trying to help. <laughs> well, it's a very noble cause, I think, because you're right. There's so many things that both sides want to work towards. It's just a matter of getting them to communicate clearly with each other um, and kind of put aside those differences for the better of all regardless of the, 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 how things get done. Right. And that's exactly the point is, you know, you're totally right. It's communication. And I think, um, in my experience, both ranchers and environmentalists are a little clicky, you know, they kind of, they kind of like their own people, which I get, you know, but if we, in my, my goal, my dream is that we are able to foster more conversations about the food, the agriculture industry in person, because right now we rely on social media so much and dialogue doesn't happen there. Um, and we're getting, we're also getting to a place where, you know, this, this, this dichotomy, this disagreement or whatever between 
ranchers and environmentalists has been going on forever, but it's way more important now than it used to be because we're running out of room. Um, and ranchers are going to be some of the last, you know, we're, we're kind of, we kind of stand in the middle between development and nature in a lot of ways. The ranch that we run, um, we back up to a subdivision and we're 45 minutes away from town. Um, and if this ranch wasn't here, it would be developed. And that's what that subdivision is, is a ranch that somebody sold that they turned into ranch jets, you know, little 40 acre deals. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but that's not where wildlife thrives. Um, that's not where our elk herds live. That's not where our moose and our bears hang out, you know, for the most part, like they might pass through, but that's not where they live. And so we're getting to where we we're going to have to like figure out how to move forward together because we don't really have time for infighting anymore. And we see that in within the industry too, different production practices. And um, not that I'm saying it's like all kumbaya and we should hold hands and everything is great. No, that's not true. But sometimes you just have to have the greater goal in mind um, and put aside some of the petty differences or the um, the ego that comes with certain things to work toward a solution together which does sound like super kumbaya and that's not really how I mean it, but here we are. I think it's collaboration. It's, you know, we, we all know that good collaboration, there are disagreements and there are people who have to meet halfway, but it's in how you talk to other people that you are able to find those collaborations versus just fighting the whole time. Yeah. And I think if, if groups can put aside that they're the most important because that's really what it is is you know people are like ranchers are the original environmentalists and someone's like what about the native americans and then you're like mm -hmm. okay fair point but also and then you know the then somebody else shows up and they're like but i am a member of the sierra club and they have done this and that and then somebody from the audubon society shows up and they're like but none of you care about the birds <sighs> and if we could just like you know everybody's got their own agenda that they bring to the table which i understand but if, yeah, if we can collaborate and maybe choose like the big goals, um, then we'll actually make progress. And I, I think that, I think it's shifting also, you know, as more and more new people and young people are coming into agriculture, um, cause you know, we do have, we have an older industry and I think we're going to start to see a trend of more openness and more acceptance into this industry. Cause this is a really tough industry to get into, um, it's a hard one. I've spoken to several people from brands and CPGs and retailers who are like, I tried to talk to some farmers and ranchers, but nobody would talk to me. Or I go to these conferences and they're all sitting at the same table and they're kind of scary and intimidating. And I, I identify with that very, very much as somebody who popped into the beef industry and tried so hard. And I still don't always get taken seriously. Now it doesn't bother me but it used to bother me a lot. And so I would just, I just want people to realize that like, we can't hold so tightly to our, our ideas of tradition and what the beef industry should look like that it costs us our industry. You know, we're going to have to loosen that hold. And I'm super into tradition. I love you know, we do old school, big ranching horseback and we're pretty traditional and, you know, we brand 
we do everything horseback that we can. Um, my husband's a pretty traditional ranching guy. Looks like he could be living in the 1800s. He's a giant mustache. It's great, but I don't think we need to hold so tightly to this. This it's not even a vision because a vision implies like forward thinking. This idea of what ranching is, because we're going to lose it, um, and we're going to have to innovate. But innovation doesn't always come at the cost of tradition. Sometimes they can work really nicely together. And I think the ranching industry is a great place to showcase that because so many of the things we do in ranching that are traditional, we do it because it's just the best way to do it. It's the easiest way. It's the fastest way. It's the best way for the cows. Um, and so I don't think we actually have to sacrifice as much tradition as people think we do. Um, and if you're concerned about the tradition that you're sacrificing, then I hope you are the one who is mentoring people in this industry and helping them come up in the traditions that you hold so dear, because I wouldn't know anything about it if people didn't take the time to teach me. So I think that's part of the collaboration is we're just going to have to shift what we think could be possible, which is tough in an industry like the beef industry. But I think we're working on it. I, I see, I see a change slowly, slowly. I feel like you just beautifully encapsulated like all of my inner feelings about that topic. Um, Cause you're so right. It's, we, we can't let go of those traditions because they are important. They're what made the industry what it is today. And it's good, but it can always be better. And we're going to have to change as times change as well. And I think you're completely right. We don't have to let go of the things that are most important or most special to us about the ranching about the agriculture, about the beef industry, but we do have to continue to stay relevant. And some of those things mean we have to change or we have to figure out how to draw more people into our circle. That's exactly right. Relevance is, is the exact right word because um, I've, I spend more time than I ever thought I would talking to ag tech people about their products. Everybody wants to have a product. And because we are going to be asked for our data, um, it's coming. I know people don't want it to come, but it's coming. We are going to be asked for data. There are a lot of companies in this space who are trying to find ways for us to collect data, to have it in a way that is practical for us. So like I talked to some dudes the other day, they have a really cool, if it works, it's going to be a really cool product. But they were like, okay, so here's our thing. They gave me their pitch. And they're like, well, what do you, what issues do you see here? And I was like, okay, um, your readers, how far away are we going to be able to, because their tech is, a, is, is, is an ear tag. There's a computer that it goes to down on your phone that can tell you where your cows are. If there's any health concerns, which is really, which is going to be really cool. It's, it started in a feed yard. And they were like, well, and they were like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, well, we ranch on 70,000 acres. So something that only reads like a mile away isn't going to do anything for us. Like if that would be an automatic no. Um, and they're like, okay, all right, thank you. Um, and then I said, you know, if it's a situation where we're hanging readers on gates to count cattle through them, it needs to be something that fits in my pocket because we are horseback. We don't, we're not going in a pickup to move cattle. And some people are. But where we are, and you know, this is really common in the West, our country's too rough. We don't do hardly anything in a pickup unless we're feeding cake or feeding hay with the hydro bed or whatever. 
And they were like, you know, we did not think of that. And I was like, yep, people tend to not. They in not like in a superior way, but in a we're a little nichey. Like we have some very yeah, we're disconnected, we're nichey, we're siloed. And but I think as producers, we can push for things that work with the way that we want to produce beef. So we can ask, you know, we can say to these companies, like, no, I cannot haul a you know, a 50 pound computer reedy thingy with a solar panel on it. Like I need something that'll fit in my saddlebag because that is how I, and, and a lot of the people who are in ag tech are happy to like work with people. They just want to know. And if we don't open ourselves up to the possibility that somebody someday is going to invent something really awesome, that's going to make our lives a lot easier, then we're, then, you know, we're never, A, we're never going to get that cool stuff, but B, if we don't open ourselves up to that possibility in those, those conversations, it's not going to work for us because we did not put in our two cents. Um, and cause we never, we never believed that it could be a thing. So, and then I think like, well, what if everyone had told Temple Grandin that she was just some Yahoo, we would all be without squeeze shoots team. And given that we just processed 300 calves, I am very grateful for our squeeze shoots. Okay. I'm just going to say that. What if, what if we didn't believe in Temple Grandin enough to get us a shoot or all of the other stuff that comes up? that we, that we use today. That's just like the regular thing that we all have. It wasn't that way before, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so we just like what we need to think about, like the possibility of what could be next. And then how do we welcome those people who are going to create those next things into our industry to make sure they actually really work and function well for us, not what people think we need. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. I kind of recognizing those blind spots because if we're somebody that has been in the industry our whole lives, we probably are not going to have the capacity to think of those amazing, cool things. We need people that don't see things the same way that we do to come in and be able to even have those ideas. One of the reoccurring segments I'd like to introduce to the Farming on Purpose podcast is a little ag history lesson. They say if you don't know your history, you'll be doomed to repeat it, and in agriculture, I don't think that's something we can afford to do. So today's ag history lesson is inspired by a lot of conversations I've been seeing cropping up on social media about the government's involvement in regulating our food. And there's a really broad spectrum of opinions about this. So let's take a look at the historical perspective of how some of these regulations came about. For today's history lesson, I'm reading from an article on Britannica.com on the Meat Inspection Act. And I'll go ahead and link that in our show notes so that you can find it and reference it for yourself. Beginning in the 1880s, American chemist Harvey W. Wiley, chief of the Bureau of Chemistry of the USDA, issued reports noting the health hazards posed by the adulteration of processed foods, such as canned meat, and by chemicals used as preservatives and coloring agents. The Association of Official Agricultural Chemists, an organization that Wiley founded in 1884, began lobbying for federal legislation governing the packaging and purity of food products. The first widespread public attention to the unsafe practices of the meatpacking industry came in 1898, 
when the press reported that Armour & Co had supplied tons of rotten canned beef to the U.S. Army in Cuba during the Spanish-American War. The meat had been packed in tins along with a visible layer of boric acid, which was thought to act as a preservative and was used to mask the stench of the rotten meat. Troops who consumed the meat fell ill, becoming unfit for combat, and some died. The canned meat scandal prompted Thomas F. Dolan, a former superintendent for Armour & Co., to sign an affidavit noting the ineffectiveness of government inspectors and stating that the company's common practice was to pack and sell carry-on. The New York Journal published Dolan's statement on March 4, 1899. The Senate then formed the Pure Food Investigating Committee, which held hearings in Chicago, Washington, D.C., and New York City from 1899 to 1900. The committee declared such common meat preservatives as borax, salicylic acid, and formaldehyde to be unwholesome. The press also reported from the committee's hearings that some of the nation's food supply was adulterated, made impure by the addition of foreign or inferior substances. These concerns were in addition to the health problems posed by the packaging of substandard or condemned meat products. At the center of public outrage was the Beef Trust, a collaborative group made up of the five largest meatpacking companies and its base of packing houses in Chicago's Packingtown area. Journalists published pieces in radical and muckraking magazines detailing the monopolistic and exploitive practices of Beef Trust businesses, as well as the unsanitary conditions of the packing houses and their tactics to evade even the smallest levels of government inspection. In 1904, Sinclair covered a labor strike at Chicago's Union Stockyards for the socialist magazine Appeal to Reason and proposed that he spend a year in Chicago to write an expose of the Beef Trust's exploitation of workers. The result was his best-known novel, The Jungle, published in 1906. Now let's break down what this means a little bit here. This information I'm about to talk about is not from the Botanical article, but in 1916, Clarence Saunders was a US inventor and he opened the first self-service grocery store called Piggly Wiggly. So that was in 1916, about 20 years or so after this first widespread food safety concern happened. So this was probably the beginning of the model of how we most of us who buy food at the grocery store access food today. Now, government regulation of food production and processing looks a lot different than it did back in the early 1900s, but I think given this historical perspective of where food production was at in those times, it made a lot of sense for the regulations that they put in place during this time. If most meat was being packaged in one of these five of these top packing houses, and they were not open to any kind of inspection, then really it's likely that there was some need for this regulation, especially if they were seeing um, folks that passed away due to contaminated products. Now, this is probably very close to the same situation where we have a very limited number of packing houses producing the majority of the meat. I should say packaging, not producing. The majority of the meat in our country um, so a lot of these regulations are still probably necessary. The question I have is, as we see more and more of a return to prioritizing buying from your local farmer, buying local, um, shopping from your local meat locker, 
are all of these regulations still necessary? Which ones are, which ones aren't? And how do we know where to draw the line? I think this is a change we're going to see in the industry as we start to see more and more people return to shopping local after a lot of the supply chain issues that have happened in these larger grocery stores. I'd love to know what you think about this and what you think about the history of the government's regulation of our food. Um, please feel free to join in on the conversation on social media. We're having these conversations over at Farming on Purpose on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Now let's get back to our interview. I view this industry completely different than people who've lived in it their whole lives. And there's a lot of skills and just inherent, you know, I don't have 35 years of being on a beef operation under my belt. I don't. Um, I did have to learn very quickly. So I feel like I can hold my own in most cases. But there are people who aren't in the industry who are probably never going to like ranch, but whose brains think completely different than ours and they see problems and solutions in different ways than we do. And if we don't let them in because they're wearing cargo shorts and they show up on to our place, like looking like they're about to go fly fishing, um, you know, we've, we've lost something, but also, you know, what happens if someone says, Hey, can I come talk to you? Or, Hey, I'd like to learn from you. What happens if you did say yes? And they like changed their whole lives and decided they wanted to get into ranching and then become like really into ranching and agriculture and then marry somebody who's also into ranching and then have a pile of kids that are also into ranching. Like you could actually start kind of a snowball thing if you, if you allow people in and that's hard because it's vulnerable, right? We don't want to talk about this in ranching. It's really touchy feely, but to allow people in, it means to be vulnerable and it means to open yourself up to stuff and questions that you may not want to answer, or you don't have the right answer. Um, and we all know on livestock operations, things can go wrong and stuff can go sideways and things die. And it's hard to explain a lot of that, which is very uncomfortable. And if you are a livestock producer who has done anything online, I am sure you have been attacked by people because that's just what happens. But, but if we never open ourselves up and we stay closed off all the time, then congratulations, we've officially completely eliminated all possibility of forward progress and change and innovation. Or we've also lost an opportunity to pass on our traditions to a new person and to explain, because actually lots of people really love cowboy and Western traditions. They really do. If you explain them, you know, they think they're really cool because they are. They really are. And I love that you said, you know, we have to have, we have to be open and realize that criticism may be part of the conversation. Um, I think that's hard for a lot of us to kind of accept. We want it to just go beautifully and always go our way, but criticism is going to be part of it at some point. How do you feel, um, I guess, on that note about some of the conversations that are happening in the environmental and regenerative ag space um, right now and how people are talking about those conversations? Um, I, I have, I don't want to make people mad. I have really mixed views about the regenerative movement. Um, 
and criticism is tough. You're right. Part of my personality type is I hate criticism. It's really, really tough for me. Um, because I spend half my life trying to make sure I'm doing everything right, which is impossible. The regenerative movement. I don't think it's the worst idea to assess how we are raising cattle, you know? Um, and there are a lot of good things about really thinking about our soils and how we are moving cattle through our operations. Like there's a lot of good stuff there. And I think a lot of producers are starting to really dig into a rotational grazing plan, um, really look at their soil quality, their water quality, their biodiversity. That stuff is all great. And I think we need more of that. The issue that I have with the regenerative movement is that people within that movement, in my anecdotal experience, tend to believe there's only one right, right way um, or a family of right ways. And um, I also see a lack of stockmanship in the regenerative movement, cattle are means to an end instead of an entity of their own. Um, you know, they learn they're all they're soil scientists, which is wonderful, but we can't forget the cow. Um, the cow is more than just a tool. And when you see cattle as a means to an end, you forget that they need to be cared for um, for their own selves, like cattle have value. And vegans do not come at me when I say this <laughs> um, because ranchers do believe that cattle do have intrinsic value in and of themselves. But, um, and I, I see an issue with scale with the regenerative movement, especially in its current iteration of mob grazing or amp grazing, using electric fences, you know, high density grazing. Um, a lot of that doesn't work in the West, we don't, um, either we have operations that are much too large to have that much electric fence, um, or, you know, in the case of our operation, our, our country is too rough. We don't have enough people. We can't move cattle every two days. Um, our stocking rates are incredibly low because of how dry we are. So a high intensity situation. And there are people who maybe listen to this like, oh no, you can absolutely high intensity graze in the desert. You can, but we are limited by the infrastructure and the budget and the labor that we have. We can't just, this barrier to entry of how much money it costs to develop a mob grazing program is something people don't want to talk about. It's really expensive. It takes a lot of labor. And when you're working on these large operations, um, you know, some of our pastures are five, 10,000 acres, <laughs> like, we can't, we, and actually we have a pasture that had electric fence in it because the BLM put it up and it was a disaster because we have elk. Mm. So, and so with the regenerative movement, like, I think it's great that we're all, we're looking for progress, but that's an area where I see some of the tradition being sacrificed in a not great way and people rolling into an established industry with an idea of how they're going to fix it and change it rather than living in the reality that we have to work with what is already here. Um, and also we can't change how consumers buy stuff. Like we can't tell them that they're gonna like, and some people say, well, yes, you can. Well, no, like we have to actually grow the product that consumers will buy. Um, and so most consumers are not comfortable paying 
six, seven, eight dollars a pound for ground beef. So we have to work, you know, it's it's a slow, a slow change. And I think a lot of people in the regen space want it to be faster. And that makes me feel nervous because I don't want us to push so hard that we sacrifice um like integrity. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. And management's a spectrum. And mm-hmm. so, and I don't want to sound like I'm throwing regenerative ads under the bus because I'm not. And I think we both, I think that's the direction we're going to move is really paying attention to soil and biodiversity. And we should, we should, but there's this, there's this thing. And I talk about this on LinkedIn all the time because people, they want the change to be quick, but if you're over here, if you're hello podcast people, I'm putting it in my hands. <laughs> if you are um, a family ranch, you've been ranching forever. You have, have maybe older leadership. We'll just say that. Um, asking somebody to write down a grazing management plan with the rotation um, and all of that, that might be about as much as you can ask from them at this time. So if you were to look at that person and be like, you're doing this wrong, you need to have a high intensity grazing plan. You need to have a plan for increasing the biodiversity of blah, blah, blah. And all these things you've just lost them. Like they've officially checked it out, signed off of your initiative. But if we recognize that that management is a spectrum and that people are going to be in different places on the spectrum for different reasons, you know, like we talked about money, time, labor, maybe they graze on a lot of public land like we do. And guess who doesn't move fast? The government, actually. The government isn't super into like putting up a bunch of stuff. So we all have to recognize that there is a spectrum and, and if we want to get better and keep scooting people towards the better air quotes end of the spectrum, we can't attack them for where they are. We have to be like, I, right, you're doing great. Like, here's the next step. Like, let's go on this journey together. Not like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you are still, you know, like I'll post them in LinkedIn and people will be like, are you mob grazing those cows? And I'm like, not in the way you would want me to, buddy. <laughs> you know why? Because we got two dudes here and I don't count as a full-time ranch person because I got kids. So no, not in the way you want us to, but are we really careful with our grass? Yes. Do our pastures look fantastic? They do. So, you know, it's just, it's, and it's, the internet makes it tough because people show up and then they yell at each other and then they're like, I'm the greatest. And someone else is like, no, I've had a family ranch for six generations. I'm actually awesome. And then I do. I think there's a lot of puzzle pieces that have to fit together. And just like with anything else, there's a place for those kind of practices, but it's not going to work in every situation for every rancher. It's not going to be right for every cattle operation. Um, so thank you so much for bringing up a lot of really important points there that, you know, I think it is no matter which side of the fence you're on there, or if you're smack dab in the middle, it's important to consider all of the different pieces of the puzzle and how they fit together. And one thing that I think a lot of people forget that you kind of brought up there is the profitability. You know, we have to work with where we're at and this is a business. We can't just choose whatever practices we think are best at this for the sake of our business, it still has to make money to feed us or we don't have a job. Absolutely. And instead of um, highlighting the differences and how we want to do things, maybe we should look for the commonalities and figure out um, how, how to collaborate like we've been talking about and, and how to leave our personal agendas and soapboxes at home because, and I do it too. Like I get, I get real soapboxy about tradition 
and handling cattle horseback and all of that stuff. Um, but I also know that there are lots of reasons it doesn't work for everybody else. And so I have to remember that that doesn't, it just makes me look like an ass really. You know, when you jump on social media and you're like, I have the best way to do everything. Someone's going to pop up and be like, well, what about this? And you're like, oh yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I have the best way to do most things. And then, and so if we just kind of all agreed, like you said, land, not making more of it. We're not going to get more of it. So we better just work together to keep what we have and to make it better. So I think that really beautifully um, ties together the pieces of the conversation though. I do have a couple questions that I want to ask everybody on the podcast um, that comes on as a guest. And one of those is when I think we get really hung up on those like keywords of mob grazing mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. And we think that if you're not using those, then you're not doing what's right. But that thing, like I said, that looks different for everyone everywhere, depending on their situation. Um, and I think it ties mm-hmm. back into a point you made kind of at the beginning about managing the land and the link you saw between these two things of an, the environmentalist piece and the rancher piece. I think we can all agree that the land is one of the most important assets that we have, whether we're ranchers, we're environmentalists, we're regenerative ag people, doesn't matter who you are. They're not making any more of it. So we've got to figure out how to make that work. What's something that has been passed on to you from the ranching way of life, either that you've kind of picked up along your journey or that someone else um, has passed along to you that you would like to pass on to others or your kids or whoever that may be? Beyond the usual like cowboy etiquette and how you treat other people. I think the most helpful thing that I was ever told was um, see how you can help. Because a lot of the time, especially in ranching, when you're new, you don't know where to put yourself. You don't know like how to not get in the way. So her advice was like, if you're not sure what to do and no one has told you what to do, like stand back and look around and see how you can help. Like first get out of the way and then see how you can help. And that is, uh, that's just something I've carried with me forever in a thing that I, um, <laughs> my husband doesn't say it quite the way that I do, but he's had lots of people that's worked for him and, and interns and people, and, you know, he will kind of yell at people like you should never be holding still if everyone around you is moving or something like that. But, you know, it's like, see how you can help look around. If you are at loose ends or you're idle, doesn't mean you have to be rushing around like a chicken with your head cut off, but you know, can you make someone else's job easier? Can you minimize the steps someone else needs to take? Can you, um, make a situation less stressful for the calves or whatever it is? If you're always in that spirit of how can I help, um, that also helps a lot with the, um, (laughs) the egos that can float around when we're doing ranch things, if we're all there in a spirit of helping, then maybe we're not in there in a spirit of I'm the very greatest at all things horseback or whatever it is. Um, and that also reminds me, cause I can get a little judgy, um, and think I kind of know how stuff should go. That reminds me to like, take it a step back and look around and make sure that I am not doing what I think I should be doing. I'm doing what I know would be helpful. You know what I mean? 
I think that's really a great advice, probably for just about any situation where you're working with other people. <laughs> yeah, it's like an all-purpose, like stand back and then see how you can help because we've all been on situations with somebody who dives in without like taking the read of what's going on. And you're like, actually, that's not what any of us needed. You're making <laughs> it worse. Or we already did that. Or please stop running around. <laughs> we can, you know, so I agree. It's been, I try to hold that with me when I go do things. Otherwise I get a little punchy. So <laughs> Okay. Sometimes we got to get a little punchy. Um, okay. And I apologize. I have one other bonus question I did not prepare you for. Um, so don't feel bad if you have to think for a second. Um, the other question I had for what is one of your favorite traditions in ranching life um, or that maybe that's been passed on to you or that you would like to build for your own family? I love in ranching, having grown up in town, I love the tradition of um, helpfulness and neighborliness um because on a ranch um you know we, we are solitary a lot but when we do works when we all come together there's a camaraderie there that exists that I didn't feel as a kid growing up um and just the recognition that there's a big job ahead of us to do and we will all get there faster if we go together um and the ranching community is just, if you need help, um, they're there. If you need anything, you're, you know, I mean, if you've done your, if you've done your job and cultivated good relationships with or with good people, cause not everybody in ranching is a good person. Like, you know, I, that's just how it is, but I love the tradition of just doing what is right, um, and doing it together and, just, um, I don't know how to say it in a more eloquent way, but it's, it's just this idea that a lot of jobs can't be done alone or they're not safe to do alone. And so bringing people with you to help, you know, like just this idea of helpfulness and camaraderie and, you know, we're all going to go out and gather cattle together and we're all going to go on the spot where we're supposed to go, because if we don't, then stuff isn't going to get done or we're going to miss cattle. Um, we're all going to wait for the last guy through the gate before we trot off. And we're going to, you know, we're going to be polite and do that. If you say you're going to show up at a certain time, you're going, you're going to do that. Um, we're all going to feed everybody. We're all going to, you know, help all the kids learn together. We're all going to look out for one another. That just that, that camaraderie and that warmth and that relationship um, it to, in my personal experience is a lot harder to find in town. And I think partially one of the reasons we have that out here is because our stakes are higher. Um, we really do have to make sure that we are surrounding ourselves with people who are good people, not only because, you know, you just don't want to hang around with people who are buttheads, but because you don't want to have dangerous yahoos at your branding. You don't want to have some dude who never stays where he's dropped off when you're gathering cattle and then you have to go back and get a bunch of them. You never want some person who's coming to help you um, who doesn't recognize that there are kids around and is being unsafe. Like we've, we've had people that we've not asked to come back to brandings because they can't manage to not ride like they're on fire and they're going to run over one of my kids. Um, and that is, the, you know, that's not the norm in our experience, but I love, I love the camaraderie and the community aspect 
Um, and we all know how it is. Like it's, you know, when it's bull sale time, you go to the bull sale and y'all haven't seen each other in a whole year because you live a thousand miles apart, but that's, it's like old home week and it's great. And if you know one person, you know, everybody. Um, and that's, you know, that's another reason to see how you can help. So you can build those relationships where people want you around too. But I love, I love my ranch family. It's, and that's the tradition I want to raise up my boys in. So they understand, you know, no man is an island. Um, and it's good to be handy on your own, but it's good to be handy with others too. Getting the job done together. Yes. Love that. Well, perfect. Evidently, I like collaboration. It's my favorite thing. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's important. Well, thank you so much, Cassidy, for making time to be on the show. And um, you offer speaking and consulting. Can you talk a little bit about any events you have coming up that people can find you at or um, where you're headed in 2023? This is a new, I've just recently launched this business because I've spoken on behalf of other organizations for a long time. And this year I was like, nope, time to go out on my own. Um, I am delivering a a talk um, in New Mexico. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say where or what, like at what thing, but I'll get you that information when they release it. Um, And that's so far what I have on my calendar because it's weaning and I don't like function in October. (laughs) I just don't, Um, but I'm building, I'm building things. I spend out, I send out speaker sheets a lot. So if anyone is looking for, I speak, um, I like to speak to producers, but I also really like to speak outside of the industry. The talk that I'm delivering in New Mexico in November is about how we connect with consumers in a more meaningful way. Um, you know, sharing your story more than just on social and how we are going to uh, be a little more bold and make a little more impact so that we can be on the offense going forward because ag is changing. Um, but I also talk a lot about being a first-gen rancher and helping people be welcomed in the industry. So I know that's not super professional, but this is all pretty new. <laughs> hey, that's okay. Everybody's got to start somewhere with something. So it's, it's good to take ownership. I think of that and be proud of it instead of trying to hide it. Getting a little better every day, but we absolutely uh, three, little, three little kids in a ranch. There's just, I'm working in the margins. So <laughs> that's I'm what happens. Exact same way. Exact same way. So well, um, where can people find you if they are interested in booking with you here in the future? My website is Cass, Johnston, J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N.com. And my Instagram is at Cass K. John. And I think that's my LinkedIn too. LinkedIn is actually where I'm most active, which is hilarious. So you can just find me on LinkedIn. Um, and my brand is not your average rancher. Thank you so much, Cassidy, for sharing your ideas about how we can do a better job of collaborating as the ag landscape continues to evolve. I hope you enjoyed this first episode of the Farming on Purpose podcast. Tune in next week for another episode, this time with Sarah Linus, as she shares her story of returning to her husband's family farm in New Jersey and adding dairy cows and a creamery to the operation. someone building their ag legacy or with stories of yesteryear on the farm that need to be shared please let us know or help them apply to be a guest on the show at farmingonpurpose.com guest 
If you've enjoyed spending time with us today, please take a moment to review the show on Apple Podcasts or give us a share on social media. You can follow the host of Farming on Purpose, Lexi, at at Farming on Purpose on all social media. And let us know what topics you want to hear more about.